Hey, good afternoon, everybody. I've got another interview here today. This is what I'm looking forward to. A successful company and a, and a strong interview. I've had, I've had the opportunity and the pleasure to sit down with Brandon McDonald from Fireweed Metals a couple of times here, and he's with me again today. Brandon, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, and again, yeah, thank you for your time, and, and thank you for this opportunity to, to come on this show. Uh, before I kind of dive into things with you here, typical disclaimers, right? Blue Sky comments we've made, forward-looking statements, not financial advice. Full disclaimer will be written notes, but uh, I don't want to spend too much time here belaboring anything. I don't want to get into this with Brandon. I think that I just mentioned off screen to Brandon. I don't want to spend too much time, uh, kind of the typical summary treatment that you might see. I think that Fireweed is, is you know, a, a pretty well-known name. And, and I think that the, the stories are well-known. I think that maybe the, the kind of focusing on details and maybe a little bit of kind of sidestepping and rabbit and rabbit chasing a little bit might be of value here. But I guess with that and having been said, I'll just contradict myself, Brandon, just for the sake of framing this conversation, providing some context, do you mind just, you know, your just your classic elevator pitch, right? I mean, you've got three projects. Uh, you know, how do you, when you're, and you're pitching it to people, how do, how do you sell people on, on what you guys have there? Yeah, you know, we, we describe ourselves as a um, critical metal explorer developer, right? And, and um, the real flagship project is the Macmillan Pass or Mac Pass zinc-lead silver project in Eastern Yukon Territory, Canada. Pretty clearly emerging as a preeminent zinc district globally. Like this is this is big, right? It's big. It's material. It's it is going to be a hugely material zinc producer for you know generations. Um, right next to it, we have Mac Tung. Um, I, I think there, there's little argument that it's probably the best tungsten deposit in the world, right? And 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 that's that's <laughs> that that's a massively forward looking and and bold statement to say, right? But but it just in terms of scale and grade. It's just like a crazy outlier. Um, you know, we see the potential there to meet a, a lot of the West tungsten demand for for a game for generations, right? You know, we could think about everything everything North America needs for fifty years, kind of, right? Um, and this is a metal dominated by China, right? So this is very topical these days. Uh, and lastly, we have our our, our Gaina project in in Northwest Territories. Um, that's exploration, super intriguing, um, exploration thesis there. Uh, the, the, the model we're, we're following, um, is, is unique globally in terms of only existing one other place in the world and, and produced one of the most unique and high grade, uh, zinc deposits in the world. That is the Kapushi deposit uh, owned by Ivanhoe Mines. Um, so that, that's early stage, but, but super interesting. And, and I think, you know, per your point about not needing to go uh, through the whole thing, you know, people who, who are got, get this far into this interview, if you don't know Fireweed, uh, go to the Fireweed website, like pause this, go to the Fireweed website, walk, you know, watch one of my corporate presentations and then come back, right? Because I, I think you're right. Like, I think this is an opportunity to deep dive and I know you do your research. So, I, so I'd rather get into that than than the performative basic stuff. Yeah, reading through the slideshow, right? And I think I mean, you've already touched on a couple of reasons that obviously it makes sense that you have. But I mean, I think that there's a classic train of thought when it comes to, you know, explorers and companies themselves, developers themselves, but also investors find best in class, right? I think that that's kind of what you guys represent. You just you discuss the unique properties of your tungsten project. You know, Mac Pass itself and Gaina itself look to be. Yeah, that that cut above that tier one potential, and don't don't diddle around looking, you know, kind of scrabble hard scrabble a half million ounces out of the ground of gold or something. Find best in class, right? And so more niche, but yeah, still that that 
critical, critical kind of pathway, passage to, to, to value. Um, one more now, just because I think this is a couple of questions I had from people, and this is a you know, classic uh, question that I'll, I'll usually I bring this at the, the end of my interviews, but I'll front load this one so we can kind of get into the meat, the meat of things later. But 2024, can you just run us through what to expect? Uh, from your three, I mean, what I mean, I you know, this is I'll touch on this later, but I mean, we see economic studies coming up, we see mineral resource estimates potentially. You know, there's maybe new targets all along. I mean, I'll ask you about gold here in a second, too. But it, I mean, it's a full plate, right? You're in the middle of this huge run of, of development and success, and it looks like you'll, you'll kind of continue into 2024 hitting the ground running. So, yeah, what do we expect? What can we see from, from Fireweed in 2024? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer because, um, I don't think we've wrapped our head around how we want to proceed um this is, this is these are not great markets right and and there's a there's that expression you know the market tells you how fast to go so if i thought fireweed was fairly valued or somewhat fairly valued and that there was all the capital i wanted to execute the strategies you know the the optimal strategies or, or the maximal sort of strategy um we be simultaneously engaging in a large, you know, cross-district exploration program and and a a you know program at Gaina, while simultaneously doing infill drilling and de-risking engineering permitting exercises uh, for Mac Pass and Mac Tom. Um, the quantum of spend to accomplish all of that uh, would be a lot, right? It's a, it's a lot, and. Um, you know, the, the, the Hollywood problem of having uh, not just a big project, but two big projects and uh, is that they're hungry. So this is, you know, to, to kind of give you an idea where our head's at as a management team and a board is um, that we're, we're just not entirely sure about 2024 yet. Um, there is, we've never been a company, we're, we're not like, you know, autocratic. I'm not, I don't dictate, you know, how things are going to be. I don't have a board uh, that just hangs out for the options and rubber stamps what the CEO wants to do. We have very informed and evidenced and robust discussions um, and arguments. And, and we try to come up with what we think is going to be the right plan. Ultimately, any plan you want to execute on has to be doable in terms of like, you know, the, the funding there for it. Um, I, I think we're actually in a unique position. I think you look at that, that most of the market um, probably couldn't raise much money right now. Uh, I, I think we could. Do I want to? I, I, I don't know. Right. So um, we, we have a reasonable amount of money in the bank. I don't know what it is right now, but um, you know, we're, we're, we're evaluating options. So I think that's kind of where the headspace is at. So that's, I know that's not an answer of like, what, what's 2024 going to be? Um, but I but I think that's kind of where we're thinking. And I, and I think the end members, I mean, the most extreme end members, and what I described is like the full-fledged program where we're spending a hojillion dollars, right? And the other end member is like, hey, that this market is terrible. Uh, these prices are, are, are bad. We don't want to raise the money. Um, let's just slow this to a crawl um i you know that's not i don't love that strategy because i think it ends up kind of biting you in the ass a little bit like i think there's this idea that in, in a perfect market um you know in an efficient market 
If you avoid dilution, you will be rewarded for that. It's kind of true. Um, but if you lose momentum, you'll be punished for it. And if the bull market comes and you're kind of caught flat-footed, you might not get the run that you think. Like It's not like you're going to normalize to the fair value versus um, you know, the, 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 the alternate universe company version of the company that, that continued to progress, right? So you kind of have to balance not being foolish with, with dilution, but also not stopping and not boring your shareholders, losing them, um, and risking, uh, not being a, a going concern when a bull market arrives. Because make no mistake, it, it's the companies that are already moving and have imminent news flow. They're going to move the first and the furthest when when a good market arrives. Well, then I maybe kind of I'm, I'm off script here. But the, the, the question that I kind of beg to ask then is a, an approach in response to to Gaina. Then is that somewhat what that was? I mean, you, it, I know it has potential to be huge. You already have two taggers by the tail with MacPass and MacTung, right? And so for me, I mean, you call it Hollywood problems, this embarrassment of riches sort of thing. The risk of maybe, like you say, one getting lost in the shuffle. But I guess the question about the acquisition of Gaina, which is recent, was that in a bid to maybe try to continue feeding a market that wants that sort of constant news flow that, or that didn't really factor into it at all? No, no, it was purely opportunistic, right? Um uh, Dr. Jack Milton, our VP Geology, geological Jesus, as we call him, with his long <laughs> hair and beard. <laughs> um, uh, he pointed out this paper that was written on Gaina that, that compared it to Kapushi and said, this is open ground. And this is at 30,000 meters of drilling. There is a zinc system there. It's open ground. Uh, it's remote, but nobody's tested this thesis. So we discussed and discussed with the board and we decided for the, for the acquisition cost of $40,000 outright to be full owner with no royalties. Um, it kind of felt like, a, all right, let's do this. Hmm. Every dollar after that had to kind of be carefully justified because we could have just held it, you know, done a nice presentation on it and maybe farmed it out to another junior or or maybe convinced a a jog mech or a you know whoever to joint venture with us to explore it um but you know we decided to do some basic work so we, we've done i, I want to say um the total cost to us must be around four or five hundred thousand worth of geophysics mapping uh soils etc on it and there's another airborne survey in the budget for early spring um, so I think it'll maybe come to 600,000 we've spent on it. Right. Um, you know, we get about, uh, depending on which analyst you talk, you, you report on ours, you read, I, mean, I think one gave us 25 million in nav for that. And, and I think they have us trading at like a 0.3 nav or something like that. Right. So, so 7.5 million market cap of ours, they're, they're attributing to Gaina for a cost of 600,000, right? So so th this is right now, <laughs> it's not always that simple, but um, so that was probably where it came from. It wasn't like a, a Lausanne curve, trying to outsmart the Lausanne curve kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. We recognize there's a unique thing there of like MacPass is still exciting. And, and I think there's good reason to think MacPass could be exciting a lot longer. Um, but 
it could it could get boring and um maybe maybe gainer can become exciting um that's kind of like a that that's a was an unintended consequence of the acquisition not an explicit declared intention sure yeah fair and so I, you, t- you referenced Jack, and he, you know I've, I've got a series of questions that it builds to a conversation I want to have around him. And so I might just kind of trace back here, and, and with this forward-looking thought of, of getting to Jack and talking about what what he does with your team. So, but Brandon, you yourself, right? You, you got a geology degree, if I'm not mistaken. Spent a few yep. years in banking. You you come to to the the you know the C-suite, public resource side with with Fire Reader, your founding member as a C, one of four founding members when it goes public in 2018 from the IPO, your CEO, and I and I and I. You know, you fast forward to now, and of course, I mean, this is, I'm sure it's been a grueling grind for you for the last five, six years. But my point that I'm trying to, that I want to get to here is that, you know, you discuss difficult markets and challenging markets. And if we look back at the past one to two years, Fireweed is a success story, right? That this is, I think, in a lot of ways, you and your team have modeled what, you know, both both you know individuals in your seat and individuals in my seat and private investors all want to see in terms of a, a successful project and successful development, successful team. And I'm not here to just kind of pump your tires and, and you know blow smoke and, and make you feel good about yourself, which you know sure. Although I appreciate you know, it, I, I do. <laughs> yeah, 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 good, right? Yeah, but no, I mean, what uh, more critically, right? That we should be learning from success cases, right? You can learn from failures as well, but these success cases that of which I think it's fair to call you one, right? That Fireweed is unquestionably a major success the last couple of years. And so I kind of, you know, I've got a couple of conversations here I want to have with you and maybe, you know, more kind of like you know, philosophically, uh, what culture approach, you know, you, you being CEO, you're in a leadership position, you know, what culture approach have you and your team brought that you credit with that? What do you look at and you reflect on the last five or six years that you see as having contributed to what you see now? Um, there's a variety of things, and, and I and I I don't think it can be understated uh, or overstated that um, the first and most important thing is the project. And people talk about like a start with the team. It's like mm, yeah, I mean, I get I get that mentality of because. Because there's almost no project so good that the wrong team can't screw it up, right? <laughs> um, in fact, there may not be any project that good. But ultimately, you know, what we're finding was put there. Well, it's, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty, and depending on what we're looking at, the tungsten, the, the zinc, and everything, somewhere between 50 to 400 million years ago. Um, and it was either there for us to find or it wasn't. Right. So that's, that's the first thing. So, so when you, when, when part of your success comes from exploration, and I think you look at, there's no doubt that the, the um, emergence of, of boundary as, as an important part of the MacPass project has been a big part of our success. It had to be there. So it was that that's, that's, you know, box number one checked, um, but you have to find it. And, and I think um, that's really a lot of credit. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the lion's share of the credit goes to the geology team led by Jack, who, um, he looked in 2020, there was a theory, you know, cause we didn't understand the mineralization at boundary exactly. Um, he had a theory that, that, that there, there could be a replaced barite body near what we were seeing near, near the kind of broad, low grade intersections. So we did a gravity survey. We found an anomaly. We developed some best, the best targets. Uh, I think two out of the three holes or something like that. Not all the holes, but, but a couple of them hit. 
and we discovered the massive sulfide zone there that that's been the 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 real uh you know prize that we've that's been emerging in that part of the project over the last couple of years um and even this year like the the you know the the zone connecting boundary west and main which we now understand is just boundary that, that was another theory that, that came in in off-season analysis and this thesis a way to test the thesis and success not all our testing has been successful right um you know 2018 we did quite a bit of testing of some new targets and basically came up uh you know snake eyes on, on basically all of them um <laughs> you know and and um couple of the targets this year um uh boundary south as we called it was a, a still unexplained gravity anomaly which we now explained and it's not anything interesting seems to be um kobuk put a couple holes in um the gravity anomaly there again seems to be something different although we're getting little 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 stringers of of zinc veining that that you know we, that one's not done we're we're still intrigued by that one but there's a lot of that you know it, it's not all like you know stepping up to the the plate and smashing everyone out of the park right so um and I, and I think that it comes down to patient backers not all of them I know some much to my disappointment seem extremely impatient um <laughs> a a board that that let us take some risks right um and um you know then then effective communication to the market and what we found um i i feel like we've been a success i i experienced no end of frustration with the fact that you know we closed at 119 today um our first day of trading in 2017 i think we closed at 91 cents right so since since then we've hit as high as 214 as low as 30 cents i think um and i feel like we've been consistently doing well and yet here we are uh six years later six and a half years later um 30 percent higher right um this drives me nuts um and and a lot of second guessing of did i communicate right did, did i pick the wrong backers who blew us out and then i had to sell the shares twice did i you know should i have raised less should i have raised more to spend that some you know like um you, you kind of go nuts and and um i had a good conversation um with a friend of mine at a recent conference and you know he he kind of i gave me a little bit of a pep talk right and it's kind of like look you have to you have to look at the the um context you're operating in right and um if you could go back in time and and do all those different things that i talked about doing you know, potentially, and or you take a bunch of different, um, you know, approaches. Um, like I said, the, the multiverse of of fireweeds. I think the current fireweeds in the in the top quintile of outcomes, right? Like I, I don't, I don't think like given the the extreme headwinds really since 2018, mm. and, and the challenge in getting people interested in in zinc in particular. Um, that there was going to be a lot of scenarios or, or any tweaks we could have made that would have saw us at five bucks right now. Right. As much as I think that, that, that could or should have been very possible or achievable. Um, so we're doing well. And I, I, I like a momentum. Um, I, I like that, you know, with the Lundin group in, 
Um, we have extremely strong backers who, as evidenced by their massive success in the Vicuña district that, that has taken two decades, are not impatient, right? Um, you know, um, they'll be impatient if they don't think I'm doing a good job, right? But but that they understand that good science takes time and, and these things take time to emerge. Um, so I, I think, you know, yeah, yeah look, we're, I, I credit, so basically the geology, um, the, the, the right backers and a, a board that gets it. Um, and then good science and a good team and a good culture within the company. And yeah, there's lots I want to touch on there, but I can't help, but I'm going to sidestep into, to one. This is, I, I promise I'm not trying to psychological profile you here, but uh, I always find it interesting talking to, to, to executives because so many of you, you guys, you watch the share price. Like, like, you're on it like a dirty shirt. You're all over it, right? And I think it's so interesting because simultaneously you have to inhabit this long-term vision that like you just discussed with Lundin's and that, that 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 eye on the prize that, you know, that next drill campaign. And you just said it, right? I mean, even in success, there's so much failure that's built into it and baked into it. And the, the ability to understand and kind of sort through the noise and maintain focus on five years down the road or whatever. But, the, you know, so that, that long-term patience but then it's kind of tempered with or that, that tension where, you know, bad share prices can destroy good companies. And it's not fair, but it's just the reality of how, especially this, this poor market, right? And so, you know, I mean, like I said, promise not, not trying to create some sort of profile on you that I'll, I'll put up on co.ch tomorrow or whatever. But, uh, yeah, right. you know, what, uh, what are, uh, I mean, what, what, how do you, what do you, what, what is your approach to that, right? Is it kind of a guilty pleasure? Is it something that you know you shouldn't or you do? Or is it something that you actually do view as kind of important to your, you know, keeping your finger on the pulse, so to speak? Well, it's a very important, right? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe you don't need to fixate on the share price necessarily, depending on whether or not there's some transaction, whether that's a, a placement or something where, where the, at that exact moment, the share price matters. Um, but, it, you know, it, feel, it feels like a, a minute by minute, second by second report card on how you're doing. And it doesn't always feel connected to how you're doing, right? It feels about 10% connected and 90% just like capricious, right? So it's like, it, it, it is, it's tough and, and you get neurotic and you really, yeah. uh, when you're in a protracted downturn, particularly when people start talking about like technicals and they're like, uh, and you can see that the chatter on Twitter or CO.ca, like, oh, fireweed, like this is, you know, it's in a downturn it's not going to break until it hits this resistance and stuff like that. And it's like, so often they're right, and it just makes you fucking nuts, right? Because <laughs> you're like, uh, right? Because you know you want to say no, 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 no. We're gonna we're gonna turn this around, and it, because it's the trading's stupid. It's it's just it's arbitrary, right? And yeah. Um. So you have to kind of stop taking it personally, and um, which is not always taking it less personally. I th I would say not stop taking it personally because it always feels personal. It always does, and and um, I I think you know. Going into this is fundamentally entrepreneurship, and um, I think honestly, a, a often or not spoken about enough trait of a successful entrepreneur is resilience, uh, because it is full of setbacks, it and it is full of these little moments of judgment that feel deeply unfair, um, and you have to just you know stick it. Okay, all right, well. I don't like this, but but what choice did you have but to to pick up and keep moving, right? So, because um, it it I, I think it can it can break you if you really let it. 
and that that's interesting too because uh, I was going to sidestep this question, and, but I think maybe you kind of let it back, led me back to it. it. What you know, if you look back on, like you say, IPO was five six years ago, and that was your first kick in the can as a CEO of a publicly traded company. Is that um, yeah? So I. What uh, what lessons did you have to learn? Okay, what was your wake up call, or, or what? Looking back, what what were the things that you the, the skill sets or attitudes you had to acquire to to make it to this point? Um, I think I had the good fortune that um, Fireweed is is substantially more complex now than when I inherited it, so um, I was able to learn on the job, right, um, and and bit by bit. Um, there's been uh, so many little lessons about um i think you just look at my first talks versus my talks now i, I just clearly more comfortable i think i have a much better understanding of what resonates and what doesn't doesn't mean that i nail it every time right i'm not i'm you know i'm not up there um like robert freeland whatever you may think about his presentation style right you know like you know with the audience just like oh you know like it's not i'm not, I'm not there but um you know getting learning about that, learning about how to story tell, realizing how much of a CEO's job is storytelling, mm -hmm. um, how to manage people. I, I'd never managed a lot of people before, you know, and now uh, when you consider the totality, particularly of contractors we have on site and, and, you know, it's, it's a, the whole lot of people that are, that are directly or indirectly working for me, like for, you know, for the company. So, um, you know, how to, how to, you know, have authority right and it's not that i don't like wield authority like a stick but you still have to you have to be authoritative right um and you have to make decisions right and, and that that's something i've learned a lot about is like that that it's always going to be imperfect right that, that mm -hmm. you're never going to have all the data perfectly analyzed pointing to a clear decision there's always going to be imperfect data and ambiguity and outcomes. Um, and you have to make a, you know, a bit of a call um, and then not beat yourself up. First of all, you don't even know if it's the wrong call, because again, you can't go back in time and try the other call to see how it turns out. Right. So you don't know what could have gone wrong with that other call. Sometimes it's, it's apparent that it was the wrong call, but um, you know, so you have to kind of give yourself a little bit of, you know, a little bit of allowance to make mistakes. Interesting. I'm going to circle back to something you referenced earlier. You discussed the storytelling aspect of being, you know, C-suite, but being the CEO in particular, right? And that part of your job is creating not just fiery the company, but fiery the narrative. That and you you sell in so many different ways to so many different people all the time, right? And one thing I think that you know you get credit for, and I think that you know I. When I think about executives in the in the industry, you, you do stand out, and, and usually for good reasons, right? That's what. So my, my question around you though is, you, you are uh, active on CEO.ca, right? You're active on retail boards, and I think that's this. You know, there are you're not the only one. I think that you stand out, and I don't think don't mean to be biased. I think I try to be objective with this, but I think you do a good job of of using that uh, medium well to contribute to. I mean, you, you discuss it yourself. I mean, you're trying to build a strong uh, investor base, sticky hands, people that know the story, and people that can buy in and be patient, let the story be told properly through the drill bit, not just through you, right? And I think there, it's it's credit to you and your team that that's that's part of it. Uh, on the flip side of that, I, I can name again without naming names, but I can think of you know executives that maybe I think they should stay off CEO.ca, and I can yeah, I can think yeah, of that, right? <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's yeah that that's that that is a needle to thread, 
right? And and it, it, it's a discussion. Um, it's been a discussion with my board, and and the conclusion was like, okay, keep doing what you're doing, but just you know, maybe don't get into pissing matches, right? <laughs> Which I've I've unfortunately done a few times, but um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it it it's tough, right? And and I I think you know I I want to create the impression which I think is accurate that, that we're accessible, that we're honest, that we're doing our best. Um, and that, that, that we're, you know, operating a long-term, you know, maximal strategy to the best of our abilities. Um, you know, I, I, I tend not to be hyper promotional. I don't like making promises that I can't deliver on. I don't, I don't mind. Like if I think this is the spectrum of outcomes, skewing towards the better end of that right that that's just sales right but i don't want to i don't want to pass that that confidence interval where i'm like well i'm kind of promising something now that's deeply un unlikely um but i do see other ceos who um like like lying or maybe not lying but like being excessively promotional whatever you want to call it is a short-term strategy for sure but it can work and you can churn a short-term strategy you know, there's a sucker born every minute. So you can, you can, when the, the current crop of suckers figures it out, you can sell it to the next crop of suckers. And um, it is unfortunately a successful strategy in this industry. Um, not for everyone though, right? It, 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 if you don't, if you don't do it extremely well, it, it works for a tiny little bit, or maybe not at all. People just see right through it because you're just not convincing enough, right? So um it's just never I'm, I'm a terrible liar i'm a truly terrible liar so it's just never been like like a i cannot take that approach i just can't i just like it wouldn't work everyone would see right through me um so so you you know understand what you're good at and what you're not um but i i do it it, it you know you you I have to manage like my i don't know envy whatever when i see someone and it's not even i don't know envy i don't i don't i'm not envious that they lied and succeeded right mm -hmm. um manage that like um frustration with the fact that that they're getting traction you're not on the back of um you know what i think is fiction right so um no it's i digress and it, point being is that like yeah i try to be accessible um i try to be sincere uh occasionally irreverent i, I like to make jokes right yeah. uh, um you know, I, I think take your work seriously. Don't always take, it doesn't mean you have to take yourself super seriously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I project confidence, but also hopefully some humility. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, no, I, I think that that's, a, if I think your self, your, your self-reflection there is accurate. I, I would agree that that's a, some, your, your persona, such as it is with the market. And I think, you know, discussing that it's so easy, the cart before the horse thing, right? Pursuing short-term share price in terms of, like you say, uh, the pumping or the, uh, you know, maybe not lying or not telling the truth, uh, obfuscating the truth, uh, that sort of approach, it, it, it does, it can produce short-term results. But it also is also quite often kind of contradictory and directly oppositional to long-term value, right? I think that you have to, I think that the risk with so many retail, uh, you can say, I mean, so many people that are maybe new to the new to the sector or maybe not totally, you know, I always think of the Dunning-Kruger, uh, Dunning-Kruger, shucks, what's it? Where the, the, the idea is when you, when you know a little, you think you know a lot. 
because yeah. you don't know all the things you don't know, right? And, and I think yeah. that happens. That that's a, that's a risk that people fall into with this with this sector in particular. Um, and so that ability to to tell a story and and focus on long term narratives and focus on long term value building, you can lose the the uh, the the impatient or you can lose the the undereducated. That's the risk, I suppose, right? But I think that I mean, if you if you t if you speak about anybody who's in this sector as an investor knows this is a deep end of the pool and half the time you've got rocks tied around your ankles, right? That, that it's, it's risky as hell, right? That, that most don't make it, yada, yada, yada. And I think that, and then again, why why I think your approach resonates with me and with others is that you know, I think that I always, this is what I always say, is that people just want to know the risks. They know it's, there's going to be it's risky as hell. They know what, when they're buying a project, a project that, that it has its own unique flavor and characteristics that make it risky. It's just that it's the nature of, of knowing what those risks are and having an executive team that actually tells that story without hiding those kind of the, the dangerous corners of it, right? And I think again, like, I mean, it's, you're very upfront and again, testament to your, your, your kind of public facing abilities. You're quite upfront with the challenges of being, you know, a, a remote locale in the Yukon, right? That, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, my that digression aside, I'm not, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here. I do want to talk about kind of getting back to questions around the discussion of success, right? And I do want to talk about you call him geology, geo, geo Jesus, right? Jack Milton. I mean, he just won an award, right? He, you guys and your yep. team just received an award like a month ago or so, a few weeks back. And so, you know, I want to, and I think, you know, you touched on, you're not an autocrat and you, and you focus on, on having a team that is able to make and empowered to make decisions and, and challenge you on decisions. Um, I want to talk about like the geological models, because I mean, like you said, I mean, the two, like, two of these, your projects are not new. They've been well explored, but you've come at them um, with with a with a new sort of focus that has produced new results and re re rejuvenated, revitalized them, and, and kind of rebuilt them in a way that they're they're different than they were before you took them. I mean, HUD Babe had an MRE for for, for Mac Pass 2007, Rio Tinto at Gaina for for a while, right? So you had big names theoretically with with big strong teams and experts and 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 the budget to kind of throw at it to make it happen, uh, and they and they passed, right? And so I. Maybe, you know, I don't know if I want you to kind of look at this more of a, of a general sort of a view. What what did Jack and the team, how did they turn this on its head to, to come at it to find that success? And maybe I will ask this generally, but more specifically, like, what what is it? I mean, these are CEDEX deposits. What, you know, you talk about finding massive sulfides. What 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 specifically has Jack, so like a two-part question here if I'm rambling on too much, is generally speaking, you know, what is it that Jack has done differently? But then in particular, that geological model is producing these improved results. Uh, you know, what are you targeting differently? Well, I, right away, it's that it's not a SEDEX. So the term SEDEX is short for sedimentary exhalative. And, and, and this, this term was actually first used in a master's thesis for the Tom deposit. Um, and um, there was this idea that you had these growth faults and, and these hot fluids coming up and these hot fluids would would come out into the this deep basin where the waters were anoxic sulfur rich and they would put the the, the, the lead and zinc in, in these these fluids would react with the seawater form sulfites and precipitate out of the water column so it's exhaled it's exhaling these um you know these sulfides um we now know it's not true that the the textures that look exhalative are as a result of barite precipitating out of the water column and subsequent um inhalation or whatever you want to call it of of these 
zinc and lead-rich fluids, which react with the barite, scavenge the sulfur from it, and form zinc and lead sulfides. And, and they maintain the textures because they replaced barite. They maintain that texture, which is why they look exhalative. They look like they precipitate out of the water column when you look at the rock. Um, so that was a big thing. Now, now the, the science that has kind of turned that on its head has really been the last 10, 15 years. Uh, to the point of when um, we launched fireweed, there was a running joke about the older you were, the more likely you were to think it was exhalative, and the younger you were, the more likely you were to think it was replacement. Um, so we kind of, as far as we're concerned, the matter is is settled, and and this is certainly the big uh, SEDEX deposits in the world, or now we call them shale-hosted base metal deposits or shale-hosted zinc deposits. Um, like the, the geologists at Red Dog do not think it's exhalative. Um, and, and certainly there's less exhalative textures at Red Dog. Um, the, the, the barite there is quite massive, right? So, so you don't get the, the fine laminations, which is the, which gives you the impression that it's exhalative. Um, but when this, when this area was explored and, and really the, the, the last drilling, uh, other than a few met holes that HUD Bay did in 2011, the last real exploration drilling in the district was 1991. And a lot has changed. So, so you think about the, the, the China growth super cycle, you know, 2003 to 2011, 12. Um, this district saw nothing, no work, uh, other than some gold exploration, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, looking for the wrong type of gold deposit, but but nonetheless, they were looking for gold. And um so you know, I was coming at this, you know, almost thirty years later with with new science, you know, and there was this this dogma on on the, the formation of Tom and Jason, which is that they were the same part of a stratigraphy, and that if it's exhalative, they're sin sedimentary, which is to say the deposits are forming as the sediment sediments are de being deposited, and um, therefore there is this, you know, event during the, the sedimentation. At one point in time that caused these deposits, that is the point in the stratigraphy everywhere in the district you want to look at because that whatever was going on, that was this event. And um, so that's that's the point that, you know, stratigraphy you want to look at. If you know it's replacement, that's not, you know, that's not how you explore. Now you're looking for chemically reactive horizons, right? Namely, barite horizons. And, and we now know that Tom and Jason, Tom sits above Jason in the stratigraphy. Jason sits above um, boundary mostly, although boundary actually has some some you know mineralized horizons at the same level as as Tom and Jason. Boundary goes all the way down until, until we think about like the lower horizon, which we we haven't talked about much, but that was a you know thing we talked about in in um, twenty twenty. You know that that's like Ordovician Silurian. That's the age of nearby Howard's Pass. You know host rocks. It's a huge huge, you know. Um, prospectivity across various parts of the stratigraphy. So you have to, you, you cannot be driven by where you are in the stratigraphy. You have to be driven by nearby structure, chemical reactivity, fluid flows, and then, and then just data. Like, you know, where, where are you seeing zinc lead anomalies? Where are you seeing uh, gravity highs? Um, and so that, that's, you know, it, it was the maturation of the science, right? That, that, um, really led us to approach this differently. 
as I think a natural follow-up to that, it's a bit of a gimme maybe, but in terms of, I mean, the, you know, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's been, you know, a couple of holes drilled sort of thing. That's a, that's a substantial length of time in terms of technological innovation. Is there is there something from geophys that you can point to that, you know, if the guys in the 80s had had it, maybe they would have understood this differently or, or without, because I think sometimes, you know, it's not a science project and so you don't have to know it perfectly. You just have to know it well no. enough to, 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 to master it as an exploration company. Are, are, is there, are there things that, that you have access to that they didn't that you think is a, is a deal maker, a deal breaker in that regard? Uh, I mean, powerful computers uh, is, is a, is a good start. And, and I'm serious yeah. because, um, yeah. um, like Jason was found because of this gravity anomaly, although they drilled the gravity anomaly, didn't hit something. And they drilled nearby cause there was a soil anomaly and they, and they found it. It's like, Oh, that wasn't the gravity anomaly. We, we, we now know from doing like super detailed LIDAR, you know, like the terrain, you know, mapping, and then using a lot of computing horsepower, to correct the gravity for um, the terrain mm -hmm. uh, because the terrain around you, like if you've got mountains right up next to you, that actually makes your gravity slightly less because you've got those rocks kind of pulling mm -hmm. you up now. Right. So, so it's like, it's, this is like percentage, like minute percentage of a minute percentage. Right. But th this is measurable in a gravimeter. So um, the, the, this super detailed terrain correction takes a lot of computing horsepower was not available back then that they could do like very basic corrections only. And it moves anomalies. Some anomalies appear out of data that does not appear to have an anomaly. Some anomalies disappear, some anomalies move, right? So that is a, that's a big thing is, is, is being able to correct for, for that. Um, other than that, it's, it's, um, you know, and I, and I think like a, a lot of the airborne work we've done has allowed us to kind of appreciate the structure and, and look at these lineaments and try to look at the intersection of these major fault and the second order fault. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, most of it was just um, different thinking, you know, coming at it a little bit more, getting a little bit luckier, you know, the, the, the boundary West massive sulfides, um, you know, we, we, when we hit that, there's the main massive sulfide horizon there and then there's the layer above it. You know, where uh, 2021, we hit 10 meters of 24% zinc. Um, that layer is a bit patchier than the main one, which is where we've been getting most of our good intersections in that area. Um, there was an old Kaminko hole that uh, came within about four meters of that uh, that horizon. They went through a, they were drilling through the rocks that, that they knew were the right rocks because of the right part of the stratigraphy. They went through a fault. On the other side of the fault, they were in the wrong rocks. And so they shut down the hole four meters further, you know, roughly based on where we map things in leapfrog, um, they might've made that discovery. So, you know, like it's, and, and sometimes it's not like the, the, the rig, uh, you know, worker. So the drillers don't know from rocks. So, you know, that shift happened to end and the, the geologist was like, no, shut this down here. Um, if, if they had crossed that fault, Early in the shift, they might have done another 20 meters before the morning when the geologist came to look and they might have made a discovery, right? So these are like these crazy stuff and, and we can be thankful that sometimes someone else gets unlucky and it allows us to get lucky, right? So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, computing is a big one. Um, we've used machine learning a bit on soils to try to kind of map stuff. Um, um, no... AI or anything like that, you know, yet. I, I, I think 
I, I could rant about this, but um, we have such a data quality issue across the industry that it's going to be tough to really get AI to make good sense of stuff, particularly when you've got so many different sources of data um, and, and maybe inconsistencies across them, right? It, it's tough to to really get a you know machine to appreciate those nuances and spit out anything other than garbage. So I, I'm going to have to sacrifice a topic here because I think I might ask you just to, to a lot of time on infrastructure. We just got a few minutes left here. I want to respect our, our bound our time limits here, but and we should uh, get to the uh, the the indexes as well. Because yeah, I know that, okay. that, that was a, right. that was a requested question. That's right. So. That's right. That's one. That, all right. Well, so let's just let's go to that. I'll, I'll put a pin in it. Maybe we can have. I'll ask you maybe to, to discuss that more at some at a later date. That idea of, of yeah. not having good enough data. But so yeah, still J. Let's do it real, real fast, right? Still J. Uh, so you're in. 798,000 shares. Um, I'm not sure what questions that individual had. I mean, the questions I have is your 58 holdings, 0.1% for CILJ is, is is your current position or is their position, whatever that means, right? If you're yeah. the Fireways position in CILJ. I mean, are there discussions ahead of time? Like, do you know from the index, is there discussions or conversations? When do you or when did you find out that you were going to get get this include? You're going to be included in the in the index. Well, they never told us, and I don't know that they would, um, because I guess there's a possibility we could front run it. Mm -hmm. um, so they never talked to us, and I and I, but, and I'd have to talk to someone else in the index of whether or not they ever talked to these guys. We we'd, we'd sent them some messages like on LinkedIn and stuff like that. We thought we were talking trying to get the right people. And we're like, hey, like you should consider fireweed. We have a lot of silver. Um, and, and the weighting there is not just, it's like how much silver you have and then also, uh, or how much revenue from silver and, and how much of your total metal is silver, you know, can, can scale it down a little bit, right? You're waiting. Um, so we had no idea whether they were listening to us or what, uh, I assumed we had missed this quarter because we'd never got a response from them. And so, so it was a bit of a surprise to come in, but, but this was an effort, right? Um, and I, and I appreciate people, you know, I think there was a concern that, He's just going to contribute volatility and, and well, I mean, yeah, volatile, it went up a lot. Right? <laughs> so, so they bought in, right. And, and they're unlikely to next quarter, just cut us out. Maybe they deweight us a bit. Right. But, the, but that's not going to be anything like the selling that the buying was. Um, and, you know, day to day, as people buy that ETF or sell it, they're going to trade, buy a little bit, sell a little bit, right? We, we figured that they're going to probably increase our volumes 15 to 20%, I think, mm -hmm. on average, based on what we're trading right now. So, you. um, so go ahead. No, go for it. You go for it. I was going to say, and, and volume is important. Like, e even uh, non directional or direction neutral volume, which is what, what this is going to mostly be, unless silver goes on a real run. And like if silver goes on a real run, we're not going to have to wait for people to figure out that fireweed has silver because people are going to, without knowing who the hell fireweed is, are going to buy silge and it's going to cause buying in fireweed. So um, I think that's good right now. If silver, you know, completely shits the bed. That's obviously not ideal. Right. But uh, um, so, so this increase in volume, we recognize there's some, we've been doing a real effort to understand what indexes we can get in and what ETFs, you know, we can get in. Um, you got to understand first that, that a zinc tungsten company, there is substantially fewer in ETFs that apply to us, substantially fewer funds that trade that will look at us. There's a huge amount of precious metal funds. Then there's a bunch of battery metal funds and some copper funds or whatever. There's not, there's not a lot of broad 
play in the market kind of mining funds, you know, so, so we're already kind of disadvantaged versus a, a gold company, right? Um, so, or a copper company for that matter, there's copper's index, indexes. there's not, mm-hmm. there's not a zinc index. Um, there's, there's a kind of a unique niche, uh, critical metal one that we might try to weasel our way in. Strictly speaking, you're meant to be a producer, but, um, we noticed they have some exceptions in there and, and there's no doubt that we're a heavy, heavy hitter in the tungsten world. Right. And they, they got a tungsten company in there that's a small potatoes compared to us. So, um, but, you know, I think there's, then there's other funds out there that, that not ETFs or whatever that might like to look at fireweed, but have specific rules around position sizing, both maximum and minimums, right? And um, how big their position can be in terms of days of liquidity, right? They may say, we can never be more than our position size is a million dollars limited because we don't want to manage, you know, a, a thousand positions. Um and it can't be more than 10 days liquidity. So if you're not trading $100,000 a day, we cannot trade you. So we've had that happen before. So the, these, these kind of direct, non-directional volatility or volume um, can help us gain access to those funds now. So this is all part of the, you know, the, the puzzle of getting liquidity and liquidity attracts investors and stuff like that. And it's, and it's kind of weird because you, you often think of like junior mining, like, well, I want it super tight just so that like a little bit of liquidity, you know, like sends it to the moon. And so, yeah, sometimes that can work um, when you're small and you're retail focused by the time you're fire rates, you know, probably not going to get to a billion dollar valuation, which I think we can achieve. I don't think we're going to get there on retail buying. We're, we're going to need institutions behind us. And those institutions are going to need to feel comfortable that they can trade in and out of their positions. So, so SLIJ and all these things are just part of that puzzle to unlock that capital for us. I think it's really interesting because I think that one of the one of the few, you know, not to not to get too cynical about the state of the market, but one of the few advantages that that the retail does have is that they are smaller and that there's an ability to be to be agile and nimble in a way that these larger ones cannot, right? That the scaling in other yeah. positions just cannot do it, right? Um, I, I do I have you got five minutes, Brandon? Or yeah, should we, oh, should absolutely. Five ten. You take me. You need. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I, I think that let's 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 transition. I do want to talk about just infrastructure. I have a couple of questions. One around Skagway and one around the Yukon Resource Gateway Program. Just because I mean, yeah. obviously, again, anybody who knows the story, you know, it's a fantastic project. So not not quite the boonies, but you know, next door to the boonies, right? And so of course, Pretty, infrastructure. <laughs> I mean, you know, so so we had someone we had to go there in winter once, and we left a guy. At camp while the helicopter went out fully loaded and then the helicopter came back and he prepped stuff to one again. And we kind of wondered when, when the helicopter had left him and he was alone there, whether he was the most alone person in the world, because there would have been nobody within 180 kilometers of him. Right. Yeah. And and can you think of anyone else who'd be anywhere else in the world that you're likely to be the, like you could draw a circle 180 kilometers around you and there'd be nobody yeah. there. Right. So this is, this is remote, right? Like don't we have a road? Which is good, but but it's remote. Yeah. yeah. So okay, and then, yeah, you start to hear the wolves howl, and you start to wonder how long the yeah. helicopter yeah, exactly, is right. back, right? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, nearest. So let's talk about Skagway, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. a couple months old now. Nearest port. It's it's kind of a natural potential destination for your for your concentrate for your project for your product. Eight hundred kilometers. So the the, the government twenty one point four million dollars has been dedicated to a marine services platform. And so this is one that you and I just, you know, I just wanted to clarify. I want, you know, I asked you, 
if, if it was going to be a range, of a range of questions that you just didn't have the answer to, that I would sidestep it. But I thought you gave a pretty articulate answer, you know, off air. So, I mean, can you just discuss, like, what is that? I mean, what, what is a marine services platform? What does that money buy? And the question that I had around you that you kind of corrected me for, and I'll ask you just to correct me again on air now, is just questions around kind of daily export capacity, right? And, and, and then now versus projected post-expansion once it opens up. Um, and I'll, I'll pause there because I think you, you kind of understand where I'm going with this. But do you want to touch on that? Yeah. I think for context, for people not in the know, um, Skagway is a little coastal town in Alaska. It's referred beautiful. to as Yukon. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. You know, this fjord, uh, Yukon's port. It was important during the gold rush because people landed there and then went over Chilkoot Pass and stuff like that, um, you know, to get into the Klondike and, and you know, explore for gold 125 years ago. Um, they get a lot of cruise ship traffic in summer, a lot. They can have four, I think up to five cruise ships there and people can go look at the you know skagway cruise ship and take a look at some images like it's ridiculous this little town of 200 can have uh like five thousand passengers there right and and so this is for them in, in that cruise ship season it is a money-making machine they sell these people the stupid trinkets and like you know stuff that has nothing to do with alaska right like all these you know all these tourist trap stores and stuff like that and you know the twelve dollar coffees or whatever, right? So uh, this is a major, mate. This is a major source of income for the for the town, and then the town gets very quiet over winter. Um, so there's traditionally been a concentrate loading port there since the days of Farrell. Uh, you know, say for example, up until it was operating Farrell when it shut down, and um, they shipped quite a bit of concentrate out of out of that port at Skagway. Um, the, the shed is only about half the shed that they were using remains and that up until recently under the closure of, um, the less than graceful closure of the Minto mine in Yukon that was being used by Minto for their copper concentrates, which are going to Japan, I believe. So, um, you know, the, the, there was all this back and forth to the community because Yukon really, really needed that port for, for tidewater access to get, to get, you know, concentrates to Asia and, um, I think the residents of Skagway were kind of pretty neutral or or maybe not even as neutral about whether or not they wanted concentrate loading there. Particularly considering that that when you know Skag or when Pharaoh did most of its loading at Skagway, it was it was pretty messy and, and it's and it's you know left some contaminants, you know, lead contamination in particular in the in the harbor there. Um so I think people were pretty iffy on whether or not they, they wanted um, you know, I think the thinking was like, no, let's, let's tear that all down and just, you know, make space for another cruise ship in summer, right? Uh, let's have six at once. Um, but credit to the Yukon, I think there was a very, uh, and, the, and the people Skagway, um, serious discussion about, you know, um, where the priorities were, season around business, uh, our duty of responsibility to our largest ally, etc., and, um, you know, the, the Yukon government agreed to fund a marine services platform um, that will be um, somewhat agnostic in how it's used. But one of the uses potential for this marine services platform could be either a for, you know, retainers. Um, so you take the concentrate in the containers and dump them into the hold or a, a mobile conveyor set up uh, to convey the concentrate into the hold. Um, so this is huge, right? So that this this. Um, significantly de-risks a lot of projects, us, casino, et cetera, that that's kind of locked down. And I, I don't know how real the risk was. It wasn't going to happen. Um, and I always kind of felt like it was, but um, I think it took a little longer than all of us were comfortable with. And 
um, but it's done, right? So so they've, they've got this commitment, I think, for the next 40 years or something like that. Um, now, for, for fireweed, um, I don't, you know, like, the base case in our PEA was, was it all would go through Skagway um, and, and go to Asia, whether that's China, Korea, Japan, all the concentrate. I'm, I'm substantially less convinced now. In theory, it's a bit more expensive to get it to trail in British Columbia, which is tech smelter there. Um, but but tech is buying their their concentrate on the Pacific, fundamentally, it's in port there, and bringing it to, to Vancouver or Portland and then railing it into trail. So actually, us dropping it off at their doorstep is cheaper for them, right? So so you can often kind of split the difference on those transportation costs. Cost. So there's going to be a negotiation of how that split works exactly. Um, but I think it could end up being cheaper or very comparable to send it to trail. Um, so depending on tech's appetite to take our concentrate and, and given their repeated investment in us, I would say that their appetite is not zero. Um, um, we may not send a huge amount through um, Skagway. And, and, you know, you point about capacity. Yeah, look, if, if and and there's, you know, an, a private company, Broden, which is, you know, in, in joint venture with the local First Nations, is hoping to finalize their, their rights to what's left at the Faro mine, the Van Gorda deposit, the pit there, and then and, and the Grammar um, Grizz or something like that, one of the other buried deposits. Um, if that, us, Casino, and never mind how it's passed, which is owned by the Chinese, and I'm not sure where that's going. All these are producing at once. And they were all going through Skagway. That's a lot, right? There's a lot mm. more than Farrell was by itself. And um, yeah, it's going it's to definitely push the facilities there to the limit, even with the new design, right? But I, I, I think we're, whether maybe using the White Pass rail um, for moving concentrate and perhaps storing it elsewhere and then bringing it down only just in time for the ship loading um, rather than storing it all in Skagway may help. Uh, alleviate that um we're looking at a lot of things it's not something that keeps me up at night like i think we're going to be fine there we've got for us you know some will go to skagway some will go to trail i think um we've, we've got options you know all of our options unfortunately by virtue of of location are, are not cheap right but um i think we've we've clarified those costs pretty well in the last pea and, and it's you know, that's one where people really don't believe those numbers. If you don't believe my mining costs, it's tough for you to really dispute it, right? Unless you're like a sophisticated mining person. Mm -hmm. uh, for trucking and stuff like that, you know, we'll go phone some trucking companies and you come on and ask how much it is to move, you know, like buckets of concentrate from here to there, right? Like you'll, you'll get a sense of whether or not I'm full of shit. <laughs> or, my, or my engineers are right <laughs> pulling one over on you too eh? uh so I, I guess you know that, that tech and trail thing was on my list was it was a natural follow-up and, and and you articulated well all kind of things i wanted to touch on and you know this the follow-up question maybe this is just me kind of stating the obvious but uh i mean advantages and disadvantages is, is the key critical advantage of of trail and tech and that smelter you know to, not to be punny but the critical mineral aspect is that is that the is that the big difference there or what what else is there that kind of that that makes it a, a, a more attractive uh, or potentially more attractive uh, destination for you uh, well it's uh i mean economics fundamentally right now yeah. now trail recovers germanium um germanium has not traditionally been a payable in concentrate 
So this is be wary of people who are telling you that they've got this great, you know, germanium in their, you know, zinc deposits. They're going to get paid a bajillion dollars for it because there's no, there is no um, precedent for that. Um, however, China has, has, is now refusing to export germanium and gallium. This may change. I, I think smelters like, like trail who have traditionally recovered germanium and sold it and as a freebie are probably going to be a little reluctant to suddenly start making that a line item, but um, maybe, right. It's, it's not going to be featuring in our economics, right. It, it, it'll be, we might, we might come to a point where we state the germanium levels in the, in the resource. And it is a, you know, boundary in particular is pretty significant germanium levels. Um, but um, yeah. And, and I guess it's a question as well of like, is is there an advantage of keeping it in the country uh duties or whatever you know some incentives within canada to to keep it within the country i i don't know um there's all sorts of emerging thoughts around critical metals and um it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because it, it's it's been a lot of rhetoric it's firming up into action um and, and you know i i i think if we I, th I think it's okay. Look, honestly, w whatever your feelings on the geopolitical tensions with China are, I think it's okay. Like, let's take a tungsten. I think it's okay for North America to buy half their tungsten or tungsten projects from China. That's not, that's fine. But 100% or 80% is not fine, <clears throat> right? This puts you in a bad situation. And so I just think, and companies are realizing that individually, that, that it's not great to have your entire manufacturing in one country, maybe some geographical distribution, right? So um, whether or not there's a bifurcation in pricing for, you know, Western sourced or ex-China metals, rare earths, tungsten, et cetera, TBD. Um, this is going to be, I think, the most interesting thing to emerge is not these little incentives here and there, which are, which are good, but it's going to be whether there's an actual bifurcation in pricing. Oh, I mean, no, and that's it, it's interesting you say that. And I won't bring it up. That's a whole other rabbit that we won't chase this time. But that that the question of if if people if if that will actually occur, right? That 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 two tier sort of pricing for tier one versus tier two, or for like you say ex China versus versus kind of friendly free trade agreement countries. At what point? And then you can talk about like the environmental impact and how do you, how do you put dollar values on carbon and all the rest. But let's just put that in a, put that in a pile and, and put it elsewhere for now. One last question here, and, and thank you for your patience and then letting me get through these. I just I've enjoyed this, and I, I'm glad to have the opportunity to kind of pick your brain here. Uh, but yeah, Yukon Yukon Resource Gateway Program, and again, mm -hmm. just, you talk China, so this is kind of Yukon's Belt and Roads Program or whatever, right? And uh, so it's you know 15 million bucks this year. $150 million over the next five years kind of is the rough numbers. Um, is there anything that you could, do you know, have they earmarked that money already? Are you in conversations or communication with Yukon government in terms of it formally or informally about, uh, do you know if you'll be achieving benefits from that? You know, how, how much of that road that inner kilometers are you seeing that benefit from, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, um, I want to say it was 350 total was the total fund. I want to say, or was it 250? Am I? Um, I just have a the, the highway en engineering project. The, the Yukon resource gateway was the whole thing, including all infrastructure, I think was 350. The, I'm just yeah. looking at the, the resource so, so gateway. So 70, $71 million of that. Now that, that was announced in 2016. Firewood was not a thing when this was announced. Fortunately, 
there was some of it earmarked for the access to uh, Selwyn Shihong's Howard's Pass, which is south of us, big behind the biggest undeveloped zinc deposit or, or deposits project in the world. Um, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, and I, I think the Canadian government had a bit of apprehension, perhaps, about subsidizing a, a Chinese project in Canada. So um, we were fortunate that uh, despite not being around when the funds were announced and actually allocated, there was a reallocation process and $71 million of it was allocated to our access roads. So over half of that is the, the ceiling of the Robert Campbell Highway between Faroe and Ross River. Uh, so um, other than Old Crow, which doesn't even have a road to it, the rest of the communities in Yukon all have sealed road access, except Ross River. So this was a bit of a bone of contention with Ross River. I mean, this is a, this is a cliche, right? That that all the, you know, communities with white people have um, sealed paved roads, and then and then this indigenous community, yeah, you know, here's a gravel road, right? So it, it is a major step forward in terms of reconciliation, et cetera. That 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 the Robert Campbell is getting sealed to Ross River. That benefits us as well, because that means now we're on sealed road from Ross River instead of from when we get to Farrell. The second half or slightly less than half of that $71 million is, is replacing the bridges on the canal, the North Canal, um, which is a huge, that, that's been a constraint for us now in terms of what we can get over the bridges, because some of them are pretty old and janky. Um, so um, that's huge. And, and, you know, with that came a commitment from the government that as we continue to de-risk and advance the project, they would look to allocate more funds, whether that's through resource gateway or something else, you know, they would, they recognize the canal road is their road, right? So it's, it's theirs to improve, to, to make fit for purpose. Right. So, um, and I think with Mac pass, Mac tongue, snow line, all going to be reliant on that road. I think it's kind of a no brainer that the, the, I don't know, additional 80 million, I don't know, total thumb suck that might be needed to fix that road versus the uh, billions and billions and billions of economic opportunity up there between those three projects, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. So, so I firmly believe it's going to happen. It, it just has to happen in a way that that manages um, our needs versus concerns with the First Nations, particularly around hunting access. So, uh, you know, you create a brand because the road's pretty... It's not a great drive right now. I've driven it. It's, it's not a good drive, right? So, so it discourages some hunters from going up there because it's it's you know it's a bit punishing. Um, and if you improve it, maybe maybe that creates additional hunting pressure up there. So, I know the government's working hard to to engage and consult with the First Nations around how to manage them. Um, but definitely optimistic, and I, and I think you know the point I've made is that is that they should not have to choose um, between you know environmental stewardship and economic opportunity. You should not have to, to say, okay, well, if we want economic opportunity, well, I guess we just have to accept environmental degradation. No, you, you should not have to do that. And there, there's no particular reason why that has to be the case here. So um, um, very glad that there's progress happening on that. Uh, looks like the the this coming summer, that this, the ceiling of the Robert Campbell's gonna be happening or at least getting started. Uh, we know the, the engineering on the canal has gone up to tender and I believe it's gone important to someone um so it's getting started right so this this is this is exciting for us 
a couple of things and they resonate for me. I mean, both and, right, in terms of environmental versus economic progress. If you can do things right, you can, it can be a both and, right? It can be a mutually, it's not a mutually exclusive oppositional sort of approach, right? Uh, and I guess maybe, and this is a nice way to end because it's kind of where we started. You kind of started here with this, this you know, the, the new boom for, for resource exploration in Yukon, right? And so do you see, you know, municipal, territory, government, state, you know, do you see an increasing not i mean obviously there's been increasing interest and seriousness already but looking forward do you see you know further port access growth growth pardon me you know power grid improvement those sort of things do you see more infrastructure dollars i mean is there are there whispers of that do you hear discussions about that well there's the 1.5 billion federally set aside for for infrastructure to critical mineral projects and, and this is like Fifty million per company or government, um, depending on the maturity of the project and how shovel ready it is, right? So, um, um, I don't doubt some of that will go to Yukon. Um, I, I think you know the the big push for the Yukon is going to be um, grid connection to BC, oh, and or and probably it's probably going to be and additional power generation within Yukon. You know, I, I think the Canadian government sees not just connecting the Yukon grid, which is an island to BC as an priority, but it's also connecting all islands to each other for, for redundancy and robustness of Canada's grid, right? To, to allow that if, if we um, build a couple nukes in Alberta, that it can benefit BC and Yukon, or if we big, build a big new hydro plant in Yukon or a wind farm or geothermal in BC, that it gets to benefit those provinces, right? Like, I think this all makes sense, but, but they need to be connected. They need to have this new smart grid, right? So um, I, I think that's a big push. I know Premier Ranch Palais has, has talked to uh, Premier Ebby in um, BC, and they seem pretty serious about this this grid connect. Um, Tung, you know, Mac, you can connect Tung to the, the Yukon grid. Uh, I don't know if Tung is big enough to justify the, the power line, but um, if you did, you'll get the, like, it's fine. The Yukon grid will manage, right? But Mac Pass, like, Mm, yeah, the Yukon grid probably could manage, right? Like, uh, but then you add like a casino. Um, casinos needs more power, ba or needs almost as much power as the entire Yukon grid, right? So, so for a casino to be on the grid, there needs to be a connection to BC. Um, and I know that's been a priority of like the Rios and what have you of the world that that they are judged on the carbon intensity of their production, so they want to see the lowest carbon intensity possible. And, and, you know, this is the point I've made repeatedly to governments is that we want to be the best miners in the world. That means safest, means lowest cost. Uh, it means, you know, um, longest mine life, you know, et cetera, and lowest carbon intensity, right? Um, and the lowest carbon intensity is hard to achieve if, if they're not working with us on that, able to provide that power to us. There, I just got my title there for the for the interview, but uh, and so I mean, yeah, final. I mean, thank you for your patience. Yeah, we've run over, and I, I appreciate you letting me take this time here to, to kind of do the deep dive. Um, final thoughts, Brandon, to you. No, I look. I think it's been a good discussion. I, I think people should, um, you know, appreciate that we could have gone for another hour or two, <laughs> right? Because because there's a lot of areas you can deep dive on these things, and and um, you know, I I, I think whether on Twitter or co.ca or email or, or whatever, if people want to, you know, continue to, to highlight questions they'd love to see asked, you know, happy to, to jump back on this call in another quarter or something like that with a whole new, you know, selection of stuff to deep dive on. Yeah. More, more rabbits to chase. Eh? No, that sounds yeah, great. Exactly. Yeah. 
no thank you brandon it's been good a great conversation and yeah i look forward to it and i uh, i'll see you on co.ca <laughs> thanks a lot man catch you later thanks